Hello, welcome back to our show, Talking About True Crime. We are your host, Olivia, and co-host, Michelle. In today's episode, we will be talking about Richard Ramirez, who is an American serial killer and sex offender known as the Night Stalker. We will be talking about his life and crimes. This is episode 10. If you are interested in hearing more about Richard, then please listen to our episode about him. We hope you are as interested in learning about Richard as we are. Who is Richard Ramirez and what crimes did he commit? Find out in this episode of Talking About True Crime. Due to the graphic nature of this podcast, there will be things mentioned that are triggers for some people. Proceed with caution. Not recommended for people under the age of 13. Richard Ramirez was born in El Paso, Texas on February 29, 1960. Richard's father, Julian Ramirez, who was a former police officer who later became a laborer on the Santa Fe Railroad. He was a hardworking man prone to angry outbursts that often resulted in physical abuse, which was directed towards his family. Mercedes, who was Richard's mother, was a kind-hearted woman who worked in a shoe factory straight through her pregnancy with her son. Unfortunately, employees were not encouraged to protect themselves from any toxins they may have been exposed to while working in a factory. He was the youngest of five children. As a child, Richard suffered two major head injuries. When he was two years old, a dresser fell on him, resulting in more than 30 stitches. When Richard was six years old, he was knocked unconscious by a swing at a playground. This injury resulted in epileptic seizures that troubled Richard until he was a teenager. Whether it was Richard's head injuries or his angry, abusive father that caused Richard's penchant for violence will never be known. By the time he was 12, he had started spending a lot of time with his cousin Miguel, who was a Vietnam vet who enjoyed sharing stories of his gruesome exploits during the war with his young cousin. Miguel took sadistic pleasure in showing a young, impressionable Richard how to kill with stealth and skill. He had been an avid pot smoker since the age of 10 years old. Having suffered from epileptic seizures since the swing incident when he was 6, his impressionable age addiction, and medical condition made Richard susceptible to his cousin's influence. It was about this time he began sleeping in a local cemetery to escape his angry father's violence. As a teenager, Richard has formed a strong bond with his, had formed a strong bond with his uncle Mike. Mike was a decorated Green Beret veteran of the Vietnam War and would spend hours with Richard smoking pot and relaying horror stories about his time at war. He would let Richard see Polaroid pictures of victims he had raped and murdered, some of them showing the severed heads of the women he had abused. Richard witnessed the murder of Mike's wife, Jessie, when Mike shot her in the face in his kitchen with a 38 caliber revolver during an argument. He was found not guilty for the murder of his wife by reason of insanity and was released after four years of incarceration at the Texas State Mental Hospital in 1977. His influence over Richard continued thereafter. At the age of 22, Richard made his way from Texas to California. In Los Angeles, Ramirez spent most of his time living out of the Los Angeles Port Authority, one of the most crime-ridden, drug-infested areas in Los Angeles. To feed his growing drug addiction, he robbed homes and sold the stolen goods for drug money. Richard's killing spree is believed to have started in May 1984 in San 
Francisco with the murder of nine-year-old Mei Ling. Though this crime was not linked to Richard Spree until many years later. Mei Ling had been raped, beaten, and stabbed. Her body was found hanging from a pipe in the basement area of the hotel. While this is Richard's first crime, he did not receive any credit for his first kill until 2009, when DNA from the crime scene was matched to him. It wasn't until 2009 that his DNA was identified on May's remains. The murders in Los Angeles are believed to have started on June 28, 1984, when Richard stabbed 79-year-old Jenny Vinkow while asleep in her apartment in Glassell Park. Her throat was slashed so deeply that she was nearly decapitated. The next Night Stalker crime occurred on March 17, 1985. Richard Ramirez shot 22-year-old Maria Hernandez in the face as she pulled into the garage of her Rosemead home. She survived the shooting thanks to the keys she had in the hand she held up to defend herself from his attack. Maria's roommate was not so lucky. Maria's roommate, Dale Okazaki, I'm sorry if I mispronounced that, everyone, hid behind the kitchen counter when she heard the gunshot that wounded Maria. Richard shot her in the face as she peeked out from her hiding place. She did not make it. Something about the attack on Maria and the murder of Dale set Ramirez off. Richard ended up attacking another woman within hours of the Rosemead attacks. Cy Leon, Veronica Yu, I'm hoping I said that right, sorry if I didn't, was forcefully removed from her vehicle at the hands of a crazed Richard. She was shot twice with a twenty-two caliber handgun. Despite being rushed to the hospital, she did not live. Three attacks that led to two murders in one day gained Richard Ramirez media attention. At this point, he was known for rotting teeth and bulging eyes. He gained his first nicknames from the press, the Valley Killer and the Walk-In Killer. Within days, Richard's insatiable appetite for violence drove him to commit more murders. On March 27th, Richard broke into the home of Vincent Zazara. I'm hoping I said that right. It was in the Zazara home where Ramirez perfected his killing style. The 64-year-old husband was killed first by a gunshot wound. His wife, Maxine, was then brutally assaulted and stabbed to death. Afterward, Richard gouged out her eyes and placed them in a jewelry box he found while robbing the couple's home. The autopsy of Maxine revealed many of her stab wounds occurred after she was killed. The way he killed these two became his standard killing pattern. Attack also left the first real clue to assist police at the beginning of the hunt. In the flower bed outside the Zazara home, a shoe print from a pair of Aviva sneakers was found, photographed, and a cast was taken off the print. It wasn't much evidence, but it was a place to start. After killing the Zazara couple, he was added again, this time in Monetary Park. On May 14, 1985, Richard broke into the Doe home. I'm not sure if I said that right. I'm sorry if I didn't. Bill Doe and his disabled wife was tortured and assaulted by Richard. Bill died of his injuries while in the hospital. William was bound while Richard ransacked their home. Richard assaulted and raped the poor woman afterward. Fifteen days after this, he continued his reign of terror. In Monrovia, Richard broke into the home of sisters 83-year-old Mabel Ma Bell and 81-year-old Florence Nettie Long. He attacked both women with a hammer he found in their home. 
He used an electrical cord to shock and torture Mabel. He bound and raped Nettie Long and then used Belle's lipstick to draw a pentagram on her leg and the walls of her bedroom. Age was not a consideration for him. Both women were comatose at the time they were found. Mabel died as a result. The Night Stalker's reign of terror continued, unfortunately. His next victim was 42-year-old Carol King of Burbank. Carol's 11-year-old son was home at the time of the break-in and assault. Both of them were handcuffed while Richard searched the house for valuables. When he couldn't find any, he released Carol and made her show him where the valuables were hidden. He then repeatedly raped her, telling her not to look at him or he will cut her eyes out. Both mother and son survived the attack. Richard ran from the home after binding them together. Richard's terror knew no bounds, geographically or otherwise. He killed in Arcadia, Sierra Madre, and again in Monetary Park. In Sierra Madre, Richard entered the home of 16-year-old Whitney Bennett. After beating the girl with a tire iron, he searched in vain for a knife. When he couldn't find one, he strangled her with a telephone cord. The telephone cord started to emit sparks when she began breathing. This scared him so much as he thought it was a sign from God. He ran from the home. Wendy was lucky enough to survive the attack, but she required more than 400 stitches to close her wounds. Not long after the Sierra Madre attack, Richard broke into the home of 61-year-old Joyce Lucille Nelson. He beat her to death with his fist and then kicked her in the head, leaving behind another Aviva sneaker print on the poor woman's face. He obviously didn't spend a lot of time thinking about evidence left behind during his killings. In the beginning of 1986, he committed two more attacks in rapid succession. In Northridge, he entered the home of Chris and Virginia Peterson. He shot Virginia. Chris ended up shot multiple times as he fought off Richard. Both Petersons were lucky enough to survive. However, two days later, he broke into the Oweth home in Diamond Bar, California. He almost immediately shot the husband in his sleep. He brutally attacked Sakina Abawith, raping her and demanding she swear on Satan that she would not scream. The couple's three-year-old child woke up during the attack. Ramirez tied the child up and continued raping his mother. After Richard finished his brutal attack and ran from the home, Sakina untied her son and sent him to the neighbor's house for help. Both mother and son survived the attack. The Night Stalker's reign of terror continued throughout the Los Angeles area. By the middle of August of 1985, Ramirez had seen news coverage of his crimes and knew he was being hunted. In a poor attempt to evade the investigation, Ramirez left the Los Angeles area and ran off to San Francisco. At the home of Barbara and Peter Pan, he continued the horror of his unsuspecting victims. As per his usual style, he shot Peter in the head before attacking, raping, and murdering Barbara. Before leaving their home, Richards used Barbara's lipstick to scrawl pentagram on the wall as well as the phrase Jack the Knife. When he watched a press conference detailing the evidence, he dropped his Aviva sneakers over the side of the Golden Gate Bridge, destroying an important piece of evidence. Detectives were furious about the press conference and the discussion of the evidence for this very reason. Maybe the news coverage rattled his nerves and caused him to get sloppy, or maybe he was exhausted from the pace at which he was committing these atrocious crimes. Either way, he began to take bigger risks, which left behind more evidence and allowed more opportunity for capture. On August 24, 1985, he attempted to enter the Romero home in Mission Vigio, 
The Romero family had just returned from their vacation. The 13-year-old happened to be awake when Richard began attempting to gain entry to the house. He was able to scare the brave Night Stalker off while gathering valuable evidence. Thanks to the young teenager's quick thinking, authorities had the color, model, and make of the vehicle Richard drove as well as a partial license plate number. The teenager was under the impression he had chased away a regular, not-at-all-sadistic thief. In reality, his actions probably saved his family's lives. After the near-miss in Mission Vigio, Richard committed his final break-in and attack. At the home of Bill Camps and Inez Erickson, he once again followed his usual routine of shooting the male resident first, then attacking the female resident. Richard said to Inez that he was the Night Stalker, further terrifying the poor woman. He made her swear on Satan before beating and raping her. Richard stole what valuables he could find, told her to tell them the Night Stalker was here, and ran from the home. Inez was able to get free and find help for Bill. Both victims survived their encounter with the Night Stalker. By allowing them to survive, he unknowingly aided in the investigation surrounding him. Inez was able to describe Richard, helping police to form a better picture of the identity of the Night Stalker. With the description of Ramirez provided by Inez, they found one single fingerprint on the vehicle that Richard stole at Wilshire Center. It had two critical pieces of evidence. They added the cast of Richard's Aviva sneaker print. The fingerprint also provided the police with this rap sheet for a 25-year-old drug-addicted drifter known as Richard Minos Ramirez. Police had a press conference where a mugshot of Richard was released to the public. They made it clear that they were on him by saying in the conference, We know who you are now, and soon everyone else will. There will be no place you can hide. Time was running out for Richard Ramirez. He was getting sloppy, and authorities now know they had a clear target. Police had enough insight to stake out local bus stations, hoping that they would catch Richard. He attempted to run from the area. He had returned from seeing his brother who lived in Texas. Richard realized authorities had spotted him. The courageous night stalker saw elderly Hispanic woman to hide behind, declaring himself the matador or the killer in Spanish. He ran and attempted to carjack two different people in the process. A crowd of bystanders saw him running and surrounded him. The crowd beat him and held him until the authorities arrived to arrest him. The night stalker's reign of terror had thankfully ended. Richard purposely went out of his way to bring disruption into the court proceedings for his trial. When jury selection began on July 22, 1988, he showed up to court with a pentagram drawn on his hand and yelled, Hail Satan, into the crowded courtroom. He had started planning to smuggle a gun to the courtroom, wanting to kill the prosecutor not long after. A metal detector was installed at the entrance of the courtroom. In another strange turn of events, a juror who was Phyllis Singletary was found dead in her apartment. She was a victim of an apparent gunshot wound at the hands of her boyfriend. It was a part of a murder-suicide. They knew Richard had nothing to do with the murder. The jury was still terrified as a result. In the most expensive trial in California's history at the time, the Night Stalker was convicted of 13 counts of murder, 5 counts of attempted murder, 14 counts of burglary, and 11 counts of sexual assault. He was sentenced to die in the gas chamber on November 7, 1989. In one of the more famous Richard Ramirez quotes, he stated on the way out of the courtroom and after receiving his death sentence, Big deal, death always went with the territory. See you in Disneyland.
The Night Stalker's trial cost California taxpayers more than $1.8 million. This record-setting cost was only surpassed by the O.J. Simpson trial years later. After his arrest and sentencing, Richard did not spend his time in prison alone. Women found themselves attracted to serial killers. They lined up for the chance to be the lover of the Night Stalker. One woman, Doreen Loy, began writing to Richard as early as 1985, right after his arrest. She wrote him more than 75 letters. In 1988, the couple was engaged. They didn't marry until October 3, 1996. Doreen Loy became Richard's wife. Loy had repeatedly stated that she would commit suicide when Richard was finally put to death in a serial killer-type Romeo and Juliet-style pact. The couple separated, and Loy never got the chance to live up to her promises. Richard Ramirez never faced the death chamber as his sentence dictated. At the age of 53, after 23 years on death row, Richard passed away from complications due to B-cell lymphoma. Even his organs hated his guts. He also suffered complications from a lifetime of drug use and alcoholism. Because California's appeal process is so lengthy, Richard could have spent another 20 years on death row before facing the death chamber. Okay, Mom, so what do you think about this? I remember seeing the guy on TV, and when we were looking him up, I'm like, I recognized that face. Yeah. But I didn't know from where. Then when we started researching, it said the Night Stalker. And then right then and there, I knew who I was looking at. Yeah. But I remember him going into courtrooms and doing some of what they said Mm -hmm. in the courtrooms. I didn't know about his early life. Yeah. How bad that was. That's that's hard for a kid to deal with. Yeah. And the thing is, is his uncle and his cousin definitely were not all there. Being as young as he was, and they thought it was okay to tell or show him all the stuff that they did when they were in service, dude, no. And they they were sick as far as I'm concerned because they seemed like they were okay with what they did to people. Mm -hmm. So, I don't know. Maybe it just runs in that side of the family. I don't know. I, it seems like his mom was a nice person, so I'm not going to say anything bad about her. But the father, I don't know which side the cousin and the uncle's from, but maybe that's where Richard got his sick mind from. Okay, that could be. But I remember my uncle, who was okay, in the military. Yeah. He would even describe what happened over there. Okay, but see, the thing is, the difference between your uncle's stories and the difference between theirs is he was disturbed by what happened over there. Those two weren't. Yeah. They were okay with what happened. Matter of fact, they did some of the killing themselves. Yeah. And they did bad things, too. So that's the difference between them and your uncle. Okay, but some of the things that my uncle would tell us is bad enough. Oh, yeah. What they did I there. To- yeah, I totally agree with that. I don't that. agree with half the things they did over no, in Vietnam. No, 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 no. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is the manner that they were doing it in was not appropriate. Mm-mm. And you shouldn't be telling a kid that anyways. None of that stuff. I no. just happened to hear it. Okay. <laughs> well, not as graphic as they yeah. probably made it. Yeah. He he didn't make it as graphic as what is on here. It, but he has told us a few things that happened. And I guess he told my mother and my grandmother more 
after the fact of me being out because when I would come in the house, they'd still be discussing something. You know, I just feel like there was something wrong with them because they were sitting there, for one, telling a kid that stuff, two, being okay with what was going on, and then doing bad things themselves. Like they were glamorizing what yeah, they did. Yeah, glamorizing. Yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking. Yeah. So those ones have to all have a few screws loose in the head to be all... Well, and, when you're in Vietnam, a lot of things happen in okay. front of you that you can't explain or deal with. Okay, yeah, that's true. But there's people who come out of that who still stay good people. And what I consider good people is people who don't go and kill innocent people mm. or do the bad things these these two did. Yeah. So, yeah, there's a difference with that. Yeah. So, but I mean, they had to have a few screws loose to be sitting here doing all this stuff. And then maybe it got passed on to Richard, and that's why he was sick in the head. Mm-hmm. And they I, were glamorizing it as well, so that made it even more Yeah, I know. Fascinating. And, and telling his cousin, he was telling Richard about how to kill, basically, and get away with it. That's what I understood from what I read. Mm-hmm. Not okay. I mean, in a way, I feel bad for Richard. What happened to him with the two head injuries that he had? That had to have a factor in messing him up as well. Mm-hmm. Chest of drawers landing on him like Yeah, he's lucky he didn't get killed. Yeah. Yeah. And I forgot what the other one that fell on him. It didn't fall on him. It, he got hit in the head with a swing. Oh, yeah. Well, those swings are hard. And he was a little kid at the time, like six. Six. So, I mean, that would be probably hurt way more and do more damage than it would to a bigger kid. Yeah. I can see to a point why these girls were attracted to him. But the thing is, is with the crimes that he committed, I would not be uh, friendly. uh, I wouldn't want to be in a relationship with him. Yeah. I'd want to avoid that completely. Like, nope, sorry. He may have good looks or whatever, but that don't matter if he's a bad egg. Yeah. Some of them bad eggs are good looking. Yeah, I know. And a lot of the women are fascinated by bad boys. Yeah, he's a really bad boy. This, yeah. You know, the other bad boy's not as bad as the, the other one. Yeah, because they don't commit murders and stuff exactly. like that. Or yeah. do bad things. So, mm-hmm. And the fact that he got married and the woman said repeatedly that she would kill herself if he got put to death. I think maybe you needed to seek some medical help because that line of thinking is not okay, especially for a man like that. And you should never kill yourself over a man in the first place. Nobody is worth killing yourself over. No. For you to be that in love, obsessed, whatever you want to call it, you should go to seek help. I'm just glad she ended up divorcing him because he didn't deserve it in the first place. I don't think he deserved to get married at all. Yeah, and the fact of his uncle and his cousin encouraging things did not help either. Mm -mm. That just fueled it. Yeah, and I also read somewhere that he was on drugs, too. I don't know what kind of drugs, but he was on some kind of drugs, so that didn't help either. Between that messed up head and taking drugs and drinking alcohol, that's all going to mess a person's head up. Is that all you have to add to this? Yeah, now since I know what he did. Yeah, exactly. Anyways. <laughs> because I didn't know when he was when I was a kid. Yeah. We want to know from our listeners what you all think. You can leave us a comment on our website, and I will leave the website in the description again. 
This has been your host, Olivia, and co-host Michelle on our podcast talking about true crime. What we covered in this episode was the life and crimes of Rich Ramirez, more specifically, his killing spree of killing the male first and raping and killing the women. Please spread the word to your family and friends if you liked what we did and if you think they would too. Please hit that follow button if you like our content and want to hear more from us. In our next episode, we will be covering Samuel Little, who was known as an American serial killer. He was known as one of the most pro serial killers. So if you want to hear about him, please come back to listen to his life and crimes and hear what we have to say about him. As I stated before, we take requests on who you want us to cover, so if you want to do that, head over to our website and leave a comment with your name, who you want us to cover, and why. We now have listener support. If you want to make a monthly donation to us, that would be extremely helpful, and any donations will be used to make our podcast better. If you are hearing this message, you've listened to another entire episode, and we want to thank you from the bottom of our hearts. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Talking About True Crime. And if you have, please leave us a review, as it will help us get noticed. Thank you!